this morning. You may be seated. Amen. Good singing indeed. I always like to note, especially if we have a guest with us, we have a special guest. It's nice to have our state senator, not ours, state senator from down in Jessamine County, Dr. Douglas with us. It's good to have you this morning, friend there of Susanna. I got to meet him this morning as well. So, I don't, how many of our Jessamine County folks live or are in church this morning? I got Jan and Woody. I got some Knowles fans back there. I got some over here, uh, Joni. So make sure you see Senator Douglas as well before you leave church this morning. It's good to have you with us. He promised me he's got his own home church. Absolutely. <laughs> and I said, well, if not, this is a good one for you as well. But anyway, the point is, it's good to have you here with us. And uh, certainly good to know our those that are in the business of making laws that we live by know and love Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Isaiah chapter number 9. Oh, that that were true on the national level. Isaiah chapter number 9 is where we are. We're looking at God with us. Last week we looked at God with us, wonderful. And this morning we're looking at God with us, counselor, as we consider these names of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll read the same passage as we did last week. We'll read it again over the next coming weeks. But we'll certainly take focus on a different word within it as we get into the preaching of the Word of God this morning. The Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government or his authority and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Father, help us as we look now at Jesus Christ, our great counselor. Help us to rest in the knowledge that he has. Oh, this name counselor certainly speaks to omniscience. And God, you are all knowing. I thank you that when Jesus Christ came, he brought that wisdom and counsel of the heavenlies to the earth. As we sang, you did leave your throne and your kingly crown to come to this earth and die for us. It's why we praise you that star of Bethlehem that our group sang of, that wonderful joy that is ours. I pray that you'll bless us as we expose the Word of God. May it work deep into our hearts and may it change how we actually live. Our country and our culture would be vastly different if Christians would but live like Christians. Bless us, I pray, in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is wonderful. Last week, we looked at the Emmanuel who came incarnate. That is the wonder of wonders that thrills our soul, as the old hymn writer says. The next identifier that we come to in this list, and we noted last week that the Bible tells us, Isaiah prophesies, His name shall be. In other words, these will be identifiers. These are the things that will mark Him. These are true of His character and of His nature. His name shall be Counselor. The word Counselor here 
in the Old Hebrew would teach us of two things. It would be legal counsel. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had to go to court. If you've ever gone into court or if you've ever had to retain legal counsel, that legal counsel does two things for you. First, that legal counsel represents you to the authority, but that legal counsel also represents the authority to you. In other words, the legal counsel is your advocate in one sense, but it's the advisor in the other sense. I would not recommend you go this way, Kyle, the lawyer might say to me if I stood before the court of law. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is. He is our advocate with the Father, and He is the one that gives great counsel and advice to us how we ought to live the eternal life that He's given to us. In your notes, I made a series of comments on the original Hebrew word. Counselor means to advise, to consult, to deliberate. As a verb, this Hebrew word means to decide, to make plans, or to make decisions. The word is translated throughout the Old Testament as counsel 25 times, counselor 22 times, consult 9, give 7, purposed five times, advice and determined another two times each. All of this is to say Jesus is our counselor. He gives us the wisdom and the way to live the life that he provides for us in salvation. In verse number seven, Isaiah tells us what the king will do when he comes. He will order and establish his kingdom. These words show that Jesus will give intelligent and essential insight on how we ought to live, why we should be living that way, and what living within his kingdom should look like. In other words, he's the final say in the matter. Jesus then is the counsel for life, we might say. His advent brought the fullness of divine wisdom into the human realm. One of the truly great passages we'll expose this morning is John chapter number 17. You can go ahead and turn over there, here from Isaiah chapter number 9. And as we turn there, I want to begin by noting this morning that Jesus gives wisdom and counsel first in our outlines on God's purpose. What does it do for us to know that Christ is our counselor? Well, the first thing it does, it does in our lives, a great service to know that His wisdom is what we live by. And He gives to us purpose. And He gives to us what God's purpose is. Well, as we come to John 17, I'm going to read a lengthy passage, and so I have to get my rec specs out here, but we're going to read the whole chapter. It is one of the highlight chapters of the Bible, John 17. I could put it up there if you want to with Romans chapter 8 one of those diamond chapters of the Bible. It's right up there with Psalm 23, a great truth and a comfort to those who are the sheep of his pasture. Uh, John 17, if you don't know it, is Jesus praying. So let's read together what Jesus prays. And by the way, as he prays it, John, the apostle, is allowed to hear it and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records it for our learning this morning. It begins by telling us God's Purpose. The Bible says in verse number one, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. 
I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In other words, Jesus states very clearly, before there was a creation, I was there with you, God the Father in heaven. I have manifested, or I have made obvious, I have demonstrated, or showed thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known not all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? The world, he would tell Nicodemus, was condemned already in darkness. He said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those who will put their faith and trust in me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that is Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might ha have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil, or the evil that is present in the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify, or I separate myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Notice verse 20. It's one of the great encouraging verses. He pivots in verse 20 away from praying for those direct apostles and disciples. And now he's praying for those who would believe through the testimony and witness of those apostles. By the way, that's you and I this morning. Keep reading in verse number 20. The Bible says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one. Why? That the world may know that thou hast sent me. Amen. That the world may know that thou hast Loved them as thou hast loved me. Verse 23 says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I've known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I've declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, 
and I in them. Friend, that is good legal counsel. He is advocating to his father on our behalf and he's advising us on God's behalf. He is our counselor. But what is he giving counsel on? Jesus came as the counselor, advising, consulting, and directing us to understand God's purpose. In John 17, we find Jesus praying, talking in his human form with his heavenly father. John, listening in, grasps this life-changing moment and records it. God, therefore, manifests two primary purposes for mankind that he wants us to know. The first that the counselor gives to us is his ultimate purpose. What is God's ultimate purpose? His glory. Can I tell you something? The only reason God created anything is so those things that were created might recognize just how glorious he is. God is glorious. And Jesus... Our counselor is the one who divulges to nature the glory of that God. He reveals to us that fallen man in our fallen nature just how far short we come of God's glory, as Paul writes to the Romans. There is a glory of God which is absolutely true and changeless. May I submit to you this morning, God is nothing like us. That doesn't mean that God did not in the person of Jesus Christ condescend to our low estate so that we might see and know the glory and goodness of God. But he is nothing like us. And the moment a Christian begins to think and understand that way, they will live differently. God is glorious. And we are corrupt. It is God's opinion... And God's opinion alone that marks the true value of a thing. One might even say it this way, God's favorable opinion is what true glory is. In other words, what he deems important, what he deems as good and glorious, we cannot say that's not good and that's not glorious. It's only his opinion that matters. That's what glory means. Glory, then, as I put in your notes to our human frame of reference, is the true apprehension or the grasping and understanding of God. That's why you read the Bible. That's why after trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, you want to draw deeper into a fellowship with Him. You want to know Him ever more. It's why the counsel of the Word of God is so imperative in your life, so that you might understand the ultimate purpose of God, His glory. The best example I can always come up with, and I'm sure it's flawed in its nature, is that of a sunset. Uh, Edward and I often, out on his house on the west side of the county and on mine out on the east side of the county, will always send each other pictures of sunsets and sunrises. I don't know if Dana is like the arbiter of those things, but we always are like, wow, what a beautiful sunrise. What a beautiful sunset. And we'll send each other pictures like we're like teenagers or something, right? It's just the beauty and the majesty. The best picture I can come up with of each of us, whatever stage of spiritual growth we're in, is observing a sunset. 
If the scientist and the scholar sat down on the coastline of the Pacific and watched that great orange ball drop into the sea, you would see the hues and the colors. Oh, they would understand the atmospheric conditions that are refracting that light as it comes through. They would understand all of the cosmos and the energy that is causing those photosynthesis, that light to be emanating from that star in the middle of our solar system. They would understand what it means in the sense of how it heats the earth and what it does for the earth and they would glory in that sunset but the eight-year-old sitting next to him would sitting next to them would equally glory in the in the beauty of that sunset what i mean to say this morning is if you don't have a deep knowledge of who god is and you've not dug into the word of god yet you can still be glad for the glory of god he's still good he's still magnificent He is still majestic. And as we go through life, each of us through the experiences that we are asked to endure, that we are given by God to walk through, we learn the different hues of the glory of his brightness. and Just how great a God he is. So you and I may not fully understand everything there is to know about God. But we can still marvel at his glory. In his word, he tells us as much. The only reason that God created anything was so that his creation, you and I, those intelligent beings of his creation, might grasp both his magnificence and his majesty. Creation, by the way, in its inanimate form, declares the glory of God. The psalmist says this in Psalm 19 in verses 1 through 3, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork, day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. We can see the majesty of God in the might of his creation. But the creature is no different than the creation. Believer and unbeliever alike will testify to the glory of God. That is his ultimate purpose. The Bible says this in Revelation 4, and I'll read the whole chapter. It's just 11 verses, but if you hold with me, you'll get a beautiful picture of what you will be doing for the rest of eternity. It's a pretty good sight. It's a wonderful show for us. At the beginning of chapter 4 of Revelation, the rapture happens. The Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard were, as it, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, rapturo. And I will show thee these things which must be hereafter. And immediately, John says, I was in the spirit. And behold, in that spiritual state, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. May I say to you, that is a wonderful aside that God always keeps his promises right before his very eyes. When, when he destroyed the world in a flood, he told Noah, I will set my bow in the clouds. And that bow is not merely set there. It is set literally surrounding him in his glorious state. We continue to read. The Bible says, and round about that throne were four and 20 seats. Do you know who that represents? 
the twelve tribes of Israel, and the twelve apostles of the New Testament church. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, I have been asked many times, Pastor, what does that mean? I just think it's a picture of completion. It's the complete mind of God at work. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. By the way, what a beautiful picture. In prophecy, humanity is always seen as a sea. Usually it's a sea that is tumultuous. Sometimes it's a sea in which the beast will rise up out of. But this sea of humanity before the throne is completely at peace. Crystal like glass. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third beast had a face as a man, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about them. They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying what? Holy, holy, holy. It is a triune God who is triune holy. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all holy. And they're singing to him. Lord God Almighty, which was in the past and is in the present and is to come in the future. He always will be holy. His glorious nature will never change. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat upon the throne who liveth forever, the four and twenty elders, this is where we enter the scene. This is where we come into the picture. This is where we will be giving God's ultimate purpose its fruition, its fullness. His glory will come out. The Bible says they worship him that liveth forever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure, insert your name next, Kyle was, or is, and was created. The entirety of my existence, from June 18, 1976, until the day God calls me home, either by rapture or by death, my entire existence is only made for one ultimate reason, that's to please God. To glorify. Do you believe that? This isn't Kyle telling you this. This is the Bible telling you this. If God says it, it's true. Why don't we live like that? I wonder why it is we struggle with such things. By the way, what about the unbeliever? If this is the state for the believer, that's a wonderful state. If you were to continue reading in Revelation chapter 20, you would come across this passage. The Bible says this in Revelation 20 and verse 11. Here is the state and the fate of all those who do not trust in Jesus Christ. Not because I want them damned to hell. Not because I want them condemned. But because this is their state. The Bible says, I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it. Now, this, friends, is not a person with a rainbow that's glorious. Oh, what faith can do for us. Where there is faith, there is no fear. Perfect love casteth out fear, John wrote in his first epistle. But where there is no faith, there is a lot of fear. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Literally has the idea of it tried desperately to escape. And there was no, found no place for them. There was no escape. And I saw the dead, small and great. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what your family history is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter who you are. 
It only matters who you know. Stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell, that is the grave and the pit, delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast where? Into the lake of fire. This, John says, is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. May I submit to you this morning, Jesus Christ's advent, his incarnation, his coming, was so that he wasn't just wonderful, but that he could be the counselor of telling us, this is God's divine purpose for you. Glorify him in all that you do. It leads us to the second declaration in John 17, and that is God's unconditional purpose, which is grace. You look back in chapter 17 and verse number 6, you will find that the Bible there discusses this. Jesus says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. In other words, those apostles who were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I have made obvious to them your name. And so while God's ultimate purpose is glory, His unconditional purpose is that He would manifest graciousness to us. God was gracious in creating anything at all. Now, I don't want to lose you this morning. It is a bit of a logical construct that we're doing here, but you're smart enough to do it. I know you are. If you don't exist, you don't matter. It was God's grace that allowed you To exist. And so his unconditional purpose is that he made us graciously so that we could have communion and fellowship with him. Let me put it another way. If God never made anything, God would still be God and he'd be happy. But his unconditional purpose to us, and by the way, this is good counsel from the word of God. His unconditional purpose is, I want to know you. And you ought to want to know me. The advent of Jesus is that fullest expression of the unconditional purpose of God's grace. Even after man willfully rejected their creator, God still loved us and pitied us in this grace. Remember that word counselor means deliberate, decisive, determined. Jesus deliberately and decisively became the determined ransom or price paid for our sin. The unconditional purpose of God was to show grace so that his creation could once again fulfill their ultimate purpose, which is to glorify him. Why did he plan or give to us unconditional grace? And the answer is because he has an ultimate purpose, and that is that he would be glorified. Jesus knew this. He executed this work while he was on the earth. That's what a counselor does. He knows the authority and he knows the advice that he's supposed to give to those that are coming to the authority. And Jesus did this. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Jesus was at that wee little man's house. What was his name? Zacchaeus. And the Bible tells us that that man got some religion. He got Jesus. He found Christ. And he goes and he sell, or gives fourfold to all the people that he had wronged in his unscrupulous work. It is at the end of that, in that context, in that man's house, 
that Jesus the counselor says this, the Son of Man in Luke 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man is come to do what? Seek and save that which is lost. Can I suggest to you, you and I are lost from the glorious nature of Almighty God. It's only by His grace that we can glorify Him at all. How do I know this? Paul would later write to Titus these words in Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live how? Soberly, righteously, and godly. Where? In this present world. Why? Because we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify, or that is glorify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. If you have a friend that tells you their church, their pastor, or their belief is that sinners can keep on sinning and God still loves you, that is not found in this book. That is bad counsel. It is wrong. And it's the problem with the modern church. It's the reason America's in the shape it's in. Christians have stopped being different, holy. It's the grace of God that allows this. Jesus, the manifestation of God's grace, came to offer that grace unconditionally because of the love of God. We all know John 3, 16, for God so... Love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth that him should have what? Everlasting life. God has eternal life because he is life. You and I from our beginning date, our conception date, until the day that we live to eternity, which will never end. From the moment we get saved, we have everlasting life because we've received his eternal life in us. The next verse goes on to say, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world. God did not need to convince the world they were sinners. They knew they were not glorious to Him. But that the world through Him, through Jesus, might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. It's pretty basic. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, John writes, Jesus says... That light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds, their very nature was evil. Jesus gives us wisdom and counsel as to God's purpose. That's why he came to be with us. But he also comes to give counsel and wisdom on God's plan, number two. If we continue reading here in John 17, and we've read the whole chapter, so we won't do it again. But if you were to keep reading here in John chapter 17, you would find that Jesus states that he prays for any of those who believe in him in verse number 9 and in verse 20. He asks for protection upon those who are followers of his in verses 10, 11, and 12. He states that he spoke, verse 13, so that we might have the fullness of his joy. In other words, we might have the clarity of good legal counsel, you might say. He gives us his word in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17 so that we might separate or sanctify ourselves from the evil that is in the world. I cannot believe often what I hear and what I see from so many Christians who say, I I just want to be like them. Don't. They're condemned 
and damned and in darkness and in death. Why would you want what they have? You should love them and have compassion upon them, saving them from the fire, but you ought not want to live like them. By the way, you always know when it's a good sermon. The projectors always die around here. I get too loud, right? It's, uh, it's just one of those things. Thank you for bearing with me. And the guys in the back literally are sweating more than I am this morning. So good for them. The last thing that we found in chapter 17 is that he sends the believers out into the world to make more converts to his grace. Here's what he actually says in verses 22 and 23. He says, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them, just like or as thou hast loved me. God's plan is to restore mankind back to our original purpose, we might say. That is the whole point of Jesus coming to the earth. There is another wonderful passage of counsel, and we'll turn to it in a moment. But the point being, here in John 17, Jesus says very clearly, You are mine, and I am yours. Jesus reveals here in John 17 two elements of God's plan. Letter A... It is a plan of perfect redemption. Not partial redemption, perfect redemption. Complete, entire, lacking or wanting nothing. When you ask Jesus to save you, everything's done. That's good counsel. That's solid advice. That's a direction you can follow. In Jesus' prayer, he makes a rather possessive statement as such. In In chapter 17 and verse 10, All mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I'm glorified, essentially, if we wanted to add the tag, I'm glorified in all those that are ours. We are Christ's. He bought us. He ransomed us. That is the product of His gracious work. Paul picks up this truth over in a companion passage. And I do think it's a companion passage to John 17. It's Ephesians chapter 1. The whole of the context would be verses 3 through 14. In that passage, and you can turn there if you want. Hold your finger here. We'll come back in just a few moments. But the entirety of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 is a divine conversation that Paul records or reveals to us about our salvation. If you read it, there are three sentences, and each sentence carries its own thought that conveys a perspective, a divine perspective of the triune Godhead as it pertains to our salvation. The Father's counsel is in the first sentence, and that's verses 3 through 6. His counsel stands outside of time, and His counsel is in keeping with His nature and with His glory. The second sentence you come across is verses 7 through 12. Jesus' counsel in verses 7 through 12 is both factual and faith-based. It shows us the trust that we must place in His work for us. The third sentence and the third counsel is from the Holy Spirit of God in verses 13 and 14. And that counsel is that salvation is both present and active. For the Holy Spirit of God is our seal unto the day of redemption. He's our guarantee until the rapture or our death that our faith hath indeed found a resting place, not in device or creed. It is the counsel of Jesus then this morning that will aid our study. So let's look at that in verses 7 through 12. The Bible says, in whom? Well, who is the in whom? Jesus. 
In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of what? His grace. Okay, here is the unconditional purpose, the grace of God. It is according to the riches of His grace, wherein, or in that grace, He, Jesus, had abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. In other words, as mankind could look at Jesus, they would see all wisdom and all prudence. That's a good counselor. But it also means that all of that is now abounding in us. It should fill us up. It should make sure we make good decisions, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation or the stewardship of time, of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one, in Jesus Christ, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. In other words, the Old Testament looked towards Jesus, the New Testament looks back to Jesus, but all of us are looking to Jesus. In whom? That's the second time he said it. In Jesus also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. Redemption is through Jesus by God's grace for your good. That's what redemption does. It's perfect. All wisdom and prudence abound towards you. The word wisdom there means skill in the affairs of life. Practical wisdom. It is the wise management that is shown in forming the best plans and selecting the best means. It means that as your counselor, Jesus exhibited this kind of wisdom. And as the counselee, you should exhibit that same wisdom every day. The other word he says is prudence. It means the ability to govern one's own life. Again, remember what we said of our counselor in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. It says of the increase of his government, there is no end. But in that government, he will both order and establish it. And what it says here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that you should be living every day prudently. Self-governing. Well, you know, the church doesn't have a rule against that. Can I tell you, I hate writing rules. I will not write a rule for you. Do you know why our legislatures, present company excluded, please forgive me, brother. uh, Our legislatures have to write so many rules. It's because mankind is so wretched. And sometimes the worst offenders are we Christians. It ought not be so. All wisdom and all prudence should be abounding. That means filling us up, overabundantly filling us up, because it filled Christ up. Jesus purposed in himself to reveal the mystery of God's goodwill, this passage tells us. Not merely God's will, but the goodness of that will towards us. Redemption, my friend, is the best thing that can happen to the human soul. It is Jesus who reveals God's redemption through his life, his death, and his resurrection. It was the aged Anna who spoke when baby Jesus came into her presence. And some of you are thinking, finally, a Christmas part of the message. In Luke 2, in verse 38, she said, When she came in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. By the way, you and I still look back to Jerusalem for the hope of our redemption. Those looking for redemption need look no farther than Jesus Christ alone. 
Galatians 4 and verse 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law to do what? Redeem. To redeem them that are under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Again, the Christmas story, Luke 2 and verses 10 and 11. The angels are singing to those wonderful shepherds. And the angel said unto them, Fear not! For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Why? What's the good news, man? You've got perfect redemption. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Unto mankind was a Savior born. That Savior's intended purpose was to open and offer God's grace and redemption to us, all according to His divine plan. Jesus is not only our redemption, but is the instructor of our redemption. This has always been one of a favorite little hidden verses that most people don't look at. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31 says this, But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. We are of God through Christ Jesus who of God, or by God's divine plan, is made unto us. This is what Jesus was made for us. This is his counselor status. He's made unto us wisdom. That means how we rightly apply what the Bible says. Righteousness, those are actions that are in accordance to what is divinely true and accurate. Sanctification, that means different than the world. And Jesus unto us is redemption, the purchase. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. There is none of us that can walk around and go, you know what kind of Christian I am? I'm the best kind of Christian. Do you know every Christian that trusts Jesus Christ is the best kind of Christian? All the ones that walk around and trust their religion, they're the worst kind of Christians. Jesus' second counsel of God's plan, and our final thought this morning, is of personal relationship. Back in our middle, not our original text, that was Isaiah 9, but our middle text that we're using as our benchmark for today. In John 17 and verse 23, Jesus, I remind you, says this, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. What an intimate thought that is. Paul would later write, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the Father in Christ, all so that we might be perfect in our oneness with God. It is the counsel and declaration of Jesus that draws us ever deeper into a relationship with this triune God, this glorious one. John 17 and verse 26, Jesus goes on and says in this same passage, And I have declared unto them thy name, and I will declare it, or the essence here is I will keep on counseling them that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. Can I ask a question this morning? Do you love reading this book? Is it an essential part of your daily life? Or is it on Sunday morning you break it out and you go, I know he's going to yell at me for a couple hours out of this, not a couple hours, but at least an hour out of this. So I better go ahead and find it. I better remember that there is no book of Hezekiah because he's going to try to trick me every once in a while. Is that your approach to the word of God? 
You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in Him for salvation, but daily by walking with Him in the Word of God. Again, consider what Paul said in Ephesians 1 and verse 11. In whom, in Jesus, also we have obtained an inheritance. It is a personal relationship. If you are not my kid, when I die, you're probably not going to get too much of the resources that I've earned throughout my life. But we are all sons of God, joint heirs together with Jesus. John 1 tells us, as many as believed in him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. What a wonderful truth that is. God's love is towards a personal relationship. Only Jesus shows us that relationship and then gives that relationship to us. In closing then this morning, God's ultimate purpose is that He be glorified by His creation. It is Jesus in coming to this earth, born in a manger, growing in wisdom and stature as Luke 2 records, going out into His earthly ministry, Walking and working, miracles, ministry, and messages all the while leading him to one point, which was death on Calvary for you and I. God's ultimate purpose is that he be glorified. Because of sin, his creation cannot glorify him. It is only the counselor, Jesus, through his deliberate choice and his determined actions that brings us a perfect redemption and a personal relationship by grace. He is wonderful. And he is a counselor. Oh, what a Savior that was born on that Christmas day. In fact, we should probably all shout with the angels, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill. Father, help us, I pray, as we close this morning.